A name is usually just a word. My surname is Dutch for doctor. That doesn't mean that people come asking me for medical advice, which is fortunate. Sometimes, however, a name is not just a word. Of course, you are familiar with Marcus Brutus, the man who famously stabbed Julius Caesar to death. Well, it's no coincidence that it was his ancestor and namesake, Lucius Brutus, who chased away the last Roman king. When the Romans came to suspect that Caesar had kingly ambitions, they expected the Brutus of their day to solve the issue. The name Brutus raised expectations. Likewise, it's not entirely coincidental that it was a Saudi who had found the kingdom that now bears that family's name. In the early 1900s, the Saudis were exiles, stranded in Kuwait. Their prospects didn't look bright, but they had one crucial asset that no one could take away from them. Famous name. The word Saud carried special weight in Arabia. It stood for something. And that's because there had been Saudi kingdoms before, in the 18th and the 19th century. That's what we're going to talk about today, among other things. But first, a little context. By the middle 1700s, the Muslim world was clearly trapped in a downward spiral, especially relative to the Christian West. This also applied to other parts of the world. Many non-Europeans automatically started wondering what they were doing wrong. Some thought, well, maybe we should follow the same path as the Europeans. That seems to be working. But others said, no, on the contrary, things used to be better, so we have to go back to the way that things were. In the case of the Wahhabis in Arabia, this is all punishment from God because Muslims have deviated from the right path. Instead of embracing more wicked novelties, we must return to the ways of the Prophet, or so they said. Now, at this point, I think it's important to slow down a bit and realize that most of us have a biased view of this dilemma. We are quick to say that modernization equals progress. You have to move with the times, no? So many of us are inclined to say that the modernizers are always right, whereas the re reactionaries are by definition wrong. But we must be aware that this is part of the bias of our own time. Nowadays, we classify countries according to how developed they are, in air quotes, as if you can objectively rank that from best to worst. But we must realize that, at least in those days, modernization often meant westernization. And that, in cases where that path was followed, it would not always lead to a bed of roses. To realize that the best decision was not obvious at all at the time, I think we should use a comparison that we can relate to ourselves. In many ways, Europe is currently being overtaken by China. The Chinese economy has grown much faster than the European economy in recent decades. And Beijing has gained more and more political power, while Europe is only losing influence. Westerners are confronted with the question of how to deal with this. Some will say, well, apparently the Chinese have found a better way, so we should emulate them as much as possible. While others would say, you serious? Are you really going to throw out all your principles just because there are a few downturns right now? Democracy, human rights, legal certainties, all these things have proven their worth over the years. And the Chinese suffer from the fact that they don't have any of these. 
They may be able to enforce lockdowns more effectively, granted, but meanwhile, the Chinese people don't even seem to trust their own locally produced corona vaccines. And you just wait until their great leader falls ill or dies. Maybe then the whole system unravels. Chinese growth comes mainly from the private sector, while state involvement is quickly growing. And what about the quality of life? Would you really rather live in China than, say, in Germany? What we need to do, such people would retort, is remember the principles that made the West strong in the first place, and strengthen these principles, and sooner or later we will reap the benefits. What I wanted to make clear with this analogy is that it is easy to talk afterwards, but at the moment when the choice has to be made, the right path is certainly not always clear. Different parts of the world responded in different ways to the rise of the West, and all proved to bring certain disadvantages. That will be a common thread throughout this episode. Perhaps one of the most reactionary approaches could be found in Arabia. As we've seen in the previous episodes, Saudi Arabia played a major role in the spread of a particularly strict form of Sunni Islam, one that tolerates little or no innovation. And the imamates of Yemen and Oman were hardly more progressive. So if there is a continuum between modernization and conservatism, then Arabia could mostly be placed at the extreme right of that spectrum for most of its history. But why could this be? Well, for starters, there is geography. The Saudis hailed from the heart of Arabia, the Nate, as it's called. Once that they conquered what would become the Saudi kingdom, Nate culture spread to other regions. Nate is so desolate that the way of life had changed relatively little there since the time of the Prophet. Technologically, politically, economically, not much had changed in any fundamental way over the past thousand years. You still had oases where emirs would rule. You still had nomadic Bedouin tribes who had a love-hate relationship with these oases. The little wealth that the emirs had came from limited agricultural yields and from tribute that was levied on traders and on pilgrims who were on their way to Mecca and Medina. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the Muslim world, complex empires had emerged. These confronted the inhabitants with all kinds of new problems, and so time and again, they had to figure out how to deal with these new issues without deviating from the Quran and the guidelines of the Prophet. This caused Islamic law to evolve significantly over time. In the Nate, however, many of these innovations were completely out of the question, because they were unnecessary. The questions that they were meant to solve were just not a thing over there. These questions were irrelevant. For comparison, 10 years ago, the laws and courts in the United States didn't have much to say about AI either. And they're still not talking about how to handle space aliens. These questions are irrelevant until they're not. Now, in the 1700s, the Ottomans were the undisputed hegemon of the Middle East. Ever since they had defeated the Mamluks of Egypt in the early 1500s, as such, they were confronted with new issues like no one else, and this would lead to ideological friction with the conservatives in Arabia. When they took over the Mamluk Empire, the Ottomans also inherited the responsibility over Islam's holiest sites, Mecca and Medina. As caliphs, they had to ensure that pilgrims from all over the world could fulfill their religious duty and make the Hajj pilgrimage. That meant they had to enforce safety 
in the route to the Hijaz, where the holy cities were. And they chose to appoint someone who could be counted upon to control the tribes in that region, the so-called Sharif. He was related to the Prophet, and that gave him a special kind of religious credibility. But at the same time, Sharifs were generally raised and appointed in Istanbul. As you'll remember, during World War I, the Sharif would change sides and lead the Arab revolt against the Turks, but originally they were the Sultan's appointees. So the Hijaz was of importance to the Ottomans, but the Nate didn't interest them in the least. It was left to its own devices, so. But however isolated they were, they were still aware that the Ottoman Empire slowly fell into decline. It became known as the sick man of Europe eventually. Furthermore, Arabia itself was also plagued by natural disasters, disease and strife. The local conservatives had a religious explanation for all this. The Ottomans were of course nothing like the original caliphs. Pilgrims and traders brought all sorts of unknown customs with them to the Hijaz. And even in the Nate, nomadic tribesmen had adopted practices like venerating sacred stones and trees. In the eyes of the conservative Arabians, all that was an affront to Allah. No wonder things were bad. God was angry with the Muslims. And there were some who believed that it was time to purify the religion. One of these was a preacher named Abd al-Wahhab, the man after whom Wahhabism is named, though not by the Wahhabis themselves, mind you. For the same reason that Muslims don't like to be called Mohammedans, that sounds a bit as if they see al-Wahhab or Muhammad respectively as more than human, and that is precisely what the Wahhabis were most strongly against. You were not allowed to worship anything or anyone except Allah himself. Wahhabis don't take any chances with this. For example, they don't even approve of the Prophet's birthday being celebrated. Weeping at grave sites is considered haram as well. During the renovation of the holy cities, by the Bin Laden company, by the way, a latrine was reportedly built on the site where the Prophet's house used to stand. Now that seems disrespectful, of course, but it was in fact intended to remove all doubt that this wasn't a holy place. From their point of view, it's actually well-intentioned. If someone was to venerate sacred places such as these, they would damn their own souls in the eyes of the Wahhabis. But of course, those on the receiving end of such uh, strict measures didn't agree. But the Wahhabis got their way eventually. In Saudi Arabia, this would become common practice. And it is al-Wahhab who planted that seed. Note, by the way, that such iconoclasm is common among many radical groups. Just think of the Taliban who blew up the Buddhas of Bamiyan. Or uh, think of what ISIL did to the ruins of Palmyra. It's no coincidence that these movements have been influenced by Wahhabism. On the other hand, this is by no means unique to Wahhabis, or even to Islam in general. Even followers of the oldest known monotheistic religion, the pharaonic cult of Akhenaton, destroyed effigies of other gods. And in the book of Exodus, we read the following quote from the God of the Old Testament. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God. End quote. 
Moses and other prophets enthusiastically smote idols too, and my own native Belgium saw iconoclasm on a large scale during the Reformation. And mind you, that was more than a hundred years before Al-Wahhab appeared on the scene. Now, such vandalism is by definition upsetting to many people, not only to the worshippers, but also to the authorities, because breaking things that are sacred to some of your people, that's not good for stability, I think that goes without saying. The fact that someone like Martin Luther could change history like he did was not just because he could distribute his message through a printing press, it was also because he could stay alive for long enough to do so. Other such reformers, like Jan Hus, were imprisoned and even burned at the stake. Luther was fortunate in that he received protection from powerful figures who saw value in his message, and not necessarily for religious reasons. So too with Al-Wahhab, there had been other preachers in Central Arabia who objected to deviations from what they saw as the true Islam, but if they became too uppity, the local emirs got rid of them. Al-Wahhab also found himself banished from an oasis because he had been too fanatical. Fortunately for him, he then found shelter in a smallish settlement in the Nate called Dirija. The local leader who welcomed him answered to the name Mohammed ibn Saud. This is the true founding father of the House of Saud, and apparently he made Al-Wahhab a proposal. He was happy to support him if, in return, Al-Wahhab would sanction that the tax that Ibn Saud wanted to impose was in accordance with the Quran. Al-Wahhab didn't play ball, however, but he made a counter-proposal, and it must have sounded something like this. If you accept true Islam and help spread it through holy war, then the proceeds will far exceed that tax that you covered. He must have been convincing because Al-Saud took him up on the offer, and apparently the message also resonated with many locals. It's impossible to determine whether they were moved by conviction, greed, or perhaps fear. In many cases, it was probably a combination. But in any case, Al-Wahhab more than fulfilled his promises. Because spurred on by jihad, Ibn Saud conquered an area comparable to present-day Saudi Arabia. His success attracted more recruits because it proved that, one, there was much to be gained by joining Ibn Saud, and two, that Allah was well disposed towards him. Al-Wahhab also benefited from the whole venture. Marriage ties were concluded with the Saudis, from which his descendants continue to reap the benefits today. And in every conquered settlement, he left behind preachers and people to ensure that the commandments of true Islam were followed. We should not imagine this to be a complex ideology. It mostly boiled down to uh, respecting the authority of the ruler, obeying his calls to jihad, and paying zakat, in other words, taxation and conscription, the two main pillars of any strong political organization. Thus, the expansion of this first Saudi Arabia went hand in hand with the spread of Wahhabism. The Saudis' reign would not be popular everywhere, however. In Mecca and Medina, shrines and revered buildings were damaged or destroyed to the dismay of pilgrims, residents, and local authorities alike. Those who thought differently were harassed. Unorthodox pilgrims were denied access. Now this was a problem that the caliph could not ignore. The organization of the large pilgrim caravans was his responsibility, but the way that these were set up was itself unacceptable to the Wahhabis, with lots of bling and music, meant to make a big show. 
What's more, the school of Islam that was patronized by the Turks was itself not recognized by the Wahhabis. And if that wasn't bad enough, the Wahhabis would also swarm north. In Iraq, they would plunder, among other things, the city of Karbala, which is sacred for Shiites. The tomb of Hussein, the grandson of the Prophet, did not even escape the onslaught. This attack may have been provoked, but the Wahhabis had major problems with Shiites anyway. They insisted that, since the Prophet was a mere mortal, no one could derive any special authority from being descended from him. And that was what the Shiites did, after all. They saw the descendants of Hossein, the Imams, as the only legitimate leaders of the faith. Note, however, that descendants of al-Wahhab himself still dominate Saudi Arabia's religious establishment to this day, which is a bit contradictory, perhaps. The Ottomans couldn't tolerate invasions in their own area, even if it was against Shiites. It was clear that those Saudis had to be dealt with. But they also realized that Arabia was not a country that was easy to invade. The desert was merciless to those who didn't know it, and the Arabians naturally did. A march through the desert would be a logistical nightmare for the cumbersome Ottoman armies, and the mobile Arabians would harass them all the way. The Ottomans didn't rush in, so they preferred to find someone else who could take care of this for them. And now it just so happened that at that instant, they were tormented by an even bigger headache in Egypt. With some luck and cunning, these two problems might just solve each other. Now, what was the problem in Egypt? It started with the arrival of Napoleon. The Corsican general had attempted to seize the Egyptian grain stalls. His little adventure ended in utter failure, but during his short stay in Egypt, he had started to reform the local administration and spread new ideas. These were then taken up by the army commander sent by the Ottomans to retake Egypt from the French, an Albanian named Mohammed Ali, not to be confused with the boxer, of course. Now, when the Ottomans had conquered Egypt in the early 16th century, they had largely left the old Mamluk elite in place. These had experience governing that country, and so they were allowed to continue to do so, albeit under Ottoman tutelage. These Mamluks now saw an opportunity in the arrival of Muhammad Ali. They asked the Sultan to make him governor, hoping that he would then feel indebted to them, probably. The Ottomans could do little but ganache their teeth, while Muhammad Ali amassed more and more power. The last thing they wanted was to give him even more. However, they couldn't simply ignore a demand from the local notables of Egypt. But they came up with a brilliant move that turned this crisis into an opportunity. They agreed to appoint Mohammed Ali as governor, just not of Egypt. Indeed, he would be named governor of Arabia. Congratulations. Pity he'd first have to retake it, but that shouldn't be a problem for a commander of his stature, right? You'll have to admit this is kind of brilliant. Either Muhammad Ali would pull this off and then the Saudi problem would be solved, or he wouldn't, and then they got rid of this insufferable upstart. They win either way. They must have been patting themselves on the back over there in Istanbul, but if so, then they were celebrating prematurely. The trap was not exactly well hidden, and they weren't dealing with a novice. Muhammad Ali had no intention of letting his loyal troops leave Egypt until he had secured his authority over there, and so he set about doing that. 
At a supposedly spontaneous mass gathering in Cairo, he was asked if he would please take up the governorship of Egypt as well. His reaction was something like, no, no, I couldn't do that, unless you insist. Okay then, I reluctantly accept, but only on these conditions. It seems preposterous, but this trick has been used countless times throughout history, from Emperor Tiberius to Ivan the Terrible to even Herman von Rompuy. Of course, there is always a chance that this will backfire on you. You don't want it? Oh, okay, fine. So if someone is willing to take that risk, it's usually a sign that he intends to take unpopular measures afterwards, for which he could use the extra legitimacy. They agreed to it beforehand, after all. Ali had big plans for Egypt, indeed. Inspired by Napoleon, he started a program of modernization, building a standing army of peasants, as well as a strong bureaucracy. This was unprecedented in this region. He was able to do that because Egypt had such a strong economy. It was not without reason that Napoleon had had his eye on it. And again, inspired by the French revolutionaries, Ali also confiscated wealth from notables and religious institutions, thereby weakening his potential rivals. These were all things that the Ottomans would later also try to do. This is a fine example of that other way of responding to the rise of the West, by the way, following their lead. As at first, it seemed like a success. And now, at last, preparations were being made for the long-awaited expedition to Arabia. That called for a celebration in honor of Ali's son, would lead the troops. The Mamluk leaders were of course all invited to attend the ceremony, that goes without saying. It was to take place in the citadel of Cairo. Only Ali had one more surprise in store for them there. As soon as they entered the citadel, the gates were closed on all sides and they were trapped. With nowhere left to run, they were slaughtered where they stood. The army was then sent into the streets, looking for anyone who was associated with the Mamluks. Et voilà, Ali must have thought, now I am ready to let my army leave with peace of mind. For Egypt, this was an event of huge importance. The Mamluks had ruled there in one form or another since the 13th century, and now they were wiped out. It opened the gates for new leadership. Mohammed Ali's position in Egypt became hereditary now. His descendants would rule as monarchs until the 1950s, when King Farouk would be deposed in the coup that ultimately brought Nasser to power. But for the time being, Ali saw no reason to formally declare himself independent from the Ottomans. He simply did what the Sultan had asked of him, to take possession of his Arab Arabian province. That, however, turned out to be just as challenging as the Ottomans had foreseen already. The Wahhabis lured the Egyptian army into a trap. However, despite heavy losses, they managed to push the Wahhabis back eventually, who withdrew to Dirija, their region of origin. The keys of the city of Mecca were sent to the Sultan. At first sight, a sign of subservience, but probably intended to enhance the luster of Muhammad Ali even more. The Sultan probably had mixed feelings about this precious gift. The Wahhabis, for their part, could have remained safely in the Nate had they wanted to. But when Muhammad Ali's son was suddenly struck down by illness, they decided that it was time to go on the offensive again. Big mistake. Another of Ali's sons, Ibrahim Pasha, immediately took charge. The Wahhabis were then crushed 
and their base of operations taken. The victors then decided to thoroughly cleanse the land of Wahhabi influences. Preachers were eliminated wherever they could find them, and the movement's leaders were sent to the Sultan to receive punishment. Their decapitated corpses would be exposed to the public until they rotted and finally thrown into the sea. No Islamic burial for them. It was a serious attempt to eradicate their influence, which worked quite well, but not forever. In no time, Arabia was again left to fend for itself. It was simply not feasible to permanently station troops there that were strong enough to pacify the country. The result was a power vacuum and therefore tribal conflict, I would almost say anarchy. Soon people started remembering the Saudi period with nostalgia, while less pleasant memories faded. At least under the Saudis there had been order of some sort. This enabled a member of the Saudi family to take power a second time. One advantage he had here, other than his famous name, was that the Saudis did not really belong to any of the major tribal groups. This meant that they were less likely to be seen as partisan, and so they could mediate in political disputes, which was often a route to political power in this region. This is not so unusual as it sounds. Saleh, the dictator of Yemen, was also able to rise to his position, partly because he didn't belong to a big tribe. If he had, then rival tribes would have cast their veto. The second Saudi Arabia that now emerged became known as the Emirate of Nate. As the name suggests, ambitions were more limited this time around. The Saudis had learned not to collide with the larger powers in the region, such as the Ottomans or the British. This allowed the Emirate to survive until the 1890s. However, there was a reason why in Central Arabia, long-lasting dynasties were quite rare. There was little wealth to sustain a patronage network, let alone a state apparatus, especially if one refrained from large-scale raids against rich areas. If the authority of leaders is weak, they cannot simply enforce their succession. Only strong figures like Mohammed ibn Saud or Abdelaziz ibn Saud can do that. The name Saud does confer legitimacy, but it's not vested in, it is vested in the family and not limited to the ruler and his sons. Brothers and uncles can also claim um, their right to the succession, therefore, and this tends to lead to family troubles. Even in recent times, this has been the case. Saud, the son of Abdelaziz, tried in vain um, to favor his own sons over his brothers, and he was deposed partly for that reason. The emirate of Nate was constantly beset by succession crisis. Outsiders tried to take advantage of that, not least the Egyptians. But they were driven back to Egypt under European pressure. Egypt, apparently, had become too strong and aggressive to the Europeans' taste. They arrest British allies, and at some point, even threatened to take over the Ottoman Empire itself. The Europeans preferred the ineffective sultans, who could be bossed about more easily. Now with the Egyptian influence neutralized, and the Ottomans becoming stronger again, the balance of power in Arabia shifted once more. The new top dogs that emerged were the Al-Rashids, a family supported by the Ottomans. The Al-Rashids, unlike the Sauds, were embedded in one of the most powerful tribal groups in the Arab world, the Shamar. This was also a weakness though, as I already explained. They were distrusted by other tribes and seen as partial, 
and therefore unfit to arbitrate. Still, for the time being, the Al Rashids held the upper hand in Arabia. At some point, they even managed to pry the Al Wahhabs away from the Saudis. Their fate was sealed, however, when their Turkish friends lost popularity in the Arab world, were defeated in World War I, and subsequently dismantled by the Allies. The Wahhabis had by then already reconciled with the Saudis, and together they conquered the third and current Saudi state. And that concludes the first part of the episode. I would now like to focus a bit on the other corners of the peninsula, starting with the southwest. When we last spoke of Yemen, we saw how the ousting of the Imam sparked a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Egypt, while southern Yemenis were busy kicking out the British. Although these two struggles sometimes overlapped, the outcome would propel north and south in totally different directions. But as we shall see today, it's not that Yemen was united before that. In the 19th century, it would also be divided between two rival outside powers, this time Great Britain and the Ottoman Empire. Indeed, when the Ottomans named Mohammed Ali governor of Arabia, that was supposed to include Yemen. As we've seen, the Egyptians were chased out of the peninsula and then the Ottomans were allowed to fill the vacuum. At that point, in the 19th century, they also tried to take the Yemen. Now it's interesting to note that this was not the first time that they had tried to do this. They'd already made an attempt at this in the early 16th century when they destroyed the Mamluks and took over guardianship of the Hijaz, among other places. One reason why Yemen was more interesting for them than, say, uh, Central Arabia was because it was more or less the only place in the world where coffee was grown at the time. At that point, the use of coffee was mostly resigned to the Muslim world. Sufis believed it helped concentrate their minds, while for precisely the same reason it would sometimes be banned by strict scholars, because it was mind-altering. The same thing would happen with cat, by the way. In fact, this is typical. Many drugs were originally used as religious aids or medicines and came in use for enjoyment purposes only later, including opium or tobacco. It's not without reason that drug also means medication. So when Yemen had a semi-monopoly on coffee, this was still something of a niche product, you might say. But perhaps the Ottomans could sense its future potential and decide that they wanted some of it. They were given a bloody nose by the Yemenis, however, and they had to leave with a tail between their legs. And mind you, they were still at the top of their game back then. So if they couldn't hold on to Yemen even then, why on earth would they want to try again in the 19th century when they were far past their prime? Well, certainly not for economic reasons. Yemen had become much less valuable since the last time that they left its shores. It had lost its quasi-monopoly on coffee. Europeans had managed to smuggle out some coffee beans and were now growing coffee in their massive colonial plantations. Tragically for poor Yemen, it could never profit from the fact that coffee houses would start popping up all over. Small aside, historians have forever argued why the global economy started accelerating so fast around that period. And I think, well, I can imagine that the fact that lots of people started drinking coffee, often instead of alcohol, that must have had some impact, no? As an experiment, why not try having wine for breakfast and see if that doesn't affect your productivity during the day? 
So that still leaves the question, if the Ottomans had failed to take Yemen even when they were in top shape, and it had become much less valuable in the meantime, why then would they choose to try again in the 19th century? Well, sometimes aggression is not a sign of strength, but rather of desperation. As the European empires grew, and especially after the Suez Canal opened, the Ottomans felt that Europeans might now threaten their crucial provinces in Mesopotamia. So they wanted to secure their southern flank, where their control was rickety at best. They also had some hope that the invasion of Yemen would succeed this time, because not only was that region in turmoil, it had changed little in terms of military technology. The Ottomans themselves, however, now had more modern equipment, both in terms of arms and transportation. They drawn lessons from their unhappy experience with the Egyptians, namely that they had to embark on a path of modernization too. That didn't just mean adopting new technologies, however. It also meant they would try to become more like a nation-state and less like an old-fashioned empire. So remote areas had to be integrated more firmly. Technology could help with that. This is why they built railroads all the way into northern Arabia. It's no wonder, though, that these railway lines would be the favorite targets of saboteurs later on, because local chiefs understood all too well that integration implied limiting their autonomy. So modernization was mistrusted by spiritual and political leaders from the start, an attitude that is still noticeable, to, noticeable today, I think. In Yemen, the story was similar. The Ottomans had great ambitions in Yemen. They even set their eyes on the mountain ranges, which, which they had wisely steered clear of in the 1500s. They were, again, warmly welcomed by the trading communities on the coast, who hoped that the Ottomans would protect them from the predatory mountain tribes and give them access to a large overseas market. It also helped that these coastal traders were usually Sunnis, like the Ottomans. And the latter eagerly confirmed that their intervention was a protective measure against the Shiites of the highlands. The flip side to that was that the Imam in the north could use this sectarian message to rally the Shiites around him. Like in northern Arabia, the Ottomans attempted to roll out a modern state machinery and a secular legal system, which was naturally met with resistance from tribal and religious leaders. Just like in northern Arabia, modernization was imposed by a not necessarily well-meaning aggressor who was ultimately kicked out. That evidently gave it a bad name. It was always going to be a hard sell, but it didn't help that the people who had to pull this off were not the most competent or motivated. Being sent to Yemen was seen as a banishment to the end of the world. Reportedly, recruits sometimes have to be tied to the decks of ships to prevent them from jumping overboard. And who could really blame them? It was just as dangerous over there as it is now. The whole venture turned out to be yet another expensive miscalculation. When Istanbul was subsequently drawn into the First World War, it felt compelled to end it. It struck a very unfavorable deal with the Yemeni Imam Yahya. They accepted his rule over Yemen, and in exchange, uh, there was a mere cessation of hostilities. Unfortunately, the Sunni trading communities that had hoped to benefit from the Ottoman presence now paid a price, as did those who had not, for that matter. That is all too often the fate of those who invaders allegedly come to protect. Just think of the women or the liberals in Afghanistan now. 
As soon as the occupier is gone, they are presented with a bill. In this case, the victors descended from their mountains to punish and plunder the supposed collaborators. They continued to dominate the South politically for most of the country's history, not totally unlike how the Nate dominated other corners of South Arabia. Another similarity is that the Imam of Yemen had the final say on all matters of state and that in theory he was available for requests. Apparently, people even set fire to their headgear to attract his attention. Not subtle, but it sounds like it would still work today somehow. Paparazzi, take note. Now, unlike the Ottomans, the Yemeni Imam was not really interested in developing his country. And even if he had been, the resources simply weren't there. This made his country a tempting target for someone like Nasser. So when a very young new Imam ascended the throne, Nasserite officers took advantage of that to declare a republic, to the horror of the Saudis who tried to reinstate the fleeing Imam, the beginning of a proxy war on Yemeni soil as we discussed previously. In the meantime, further south, Britain had taken advantage of a shipping incident to capture the town of Aden. This place became more appealing once the Suez Canal was opened up, because from then on, Ships bound for the Indian Ocean no longer had to sail around South Africa, they could go past Yemen instead, and so Aden was a perfect place for an entrepot. The sheikhs in the surrounding area were recognized and even protected sometimes by the British, on the condition that they caused no trouble for Aden. Of course, all this was yet another reason for the Ottomans to become nervous and to push further into Arabia, including into the Yemen. The borders between the two Yemens would eventually be sealed through an agreement between these two rival outsiders, not by the Yemenis themselves. So it is indeed true that the separation of the two Yemenis is artificial in origin, but that doesn't mean Yemen was united before that. Partly because of the power play of the Turks and the British, North and South would undergo a very different development. The inhabitants would grow further apart, also culturally, while the North remained tribal, Aden would become a metropolis. That said, just like Ottoman recruits, British soldiers also felt that being sent to Yemen was something of a punishment, which didn't help to win over local hearts and minds. And the British hardly bothered with the protected tribes around Aden, since they were of no value to them. Until just before the British withdrawal, when they were suddenly told to merge with Aden, which was of course met with resistance. This move would contribute to a chaotic decolonization. Ultimately, the South fell to radical communists, which made the differences between North and South starker still. And by the time that the two Yemens were united in the 1990s, they had become completely different countries. To end this episode, let's talk a bit about the origins of the Emirates around the Arabian East Coast. There too, the British became involved in tribal disputes, and for similar reasons as in Yemen. Traditionally, communities had to seek protection from tribal chiefs and pay tribute. Anyone who failed to do so risked being attacked and robbed, and that also applied to passing ships. Tellingly, this coast was known as the Pirate Coast, at least in Europe. But this became a problem as more and more British ships passed between Britain and India loaded with all kinds of valuables. Of course, that attracted privateers, especially since there was hardly anything of value to be found inland. 
so there were very few alternative ways to make a living for the locals. You can compare this with the current situation in the Horn of Africa. In places like Somalia, you have a combination of grotesque poverty, an absence of state authority and important trade routes. Trading fleets have had to take out expensive insurance and arrange escorts by warships to ward off pirates in speedboats, with mixed success, by the way. In comparison, the British approach in the 1800s was perhaps more far-sighted. They subsidized and supported settlements that promised to fight piracy, and this completely changed the balance of power in the Gulf. There had long been a struggle between large tribal groups, one of which was less involved in piracy than the other. Thanks to British subsidies and weapons, the former now gained the upper hand. That is how Abu Dhabi got its dominant position. And the beautiful part was that the British hardly had to dirty their hands at all. Indeed, like in Yemen, Britain did not interfere with the sheikhdoms further inland. But thanks to their allowance, its protégés were able to buy influence there, and sometimes even dynastic peace, albeit with less success than later, when the emirates really became rich. Here too, legitimacy lay with the family, not the ruler, and there were no clear rules of succession, so when, for instance, Zayed the Great died, the man who started Abu Dhabi's current dynasty, his sons fell out with one another. Family disputes became even more complex because there were also tribal ties with neighboring emirates or sheikhdoms. Abu Dhabi, for instance, was founded in the mid-1700s, supposedly when people from Central Arabia captured a gazelle on that spot, and they decided to stay, which is why Abu Dhabi means father of the gazelle. Around 1830, some of the inhabitants upped sticks again and settled in Dubai, where they established their own emirate. Now, the gazelle in this story doesn't matter politically, but the tribal links do. It could help unite the emirates later, but it also has the potential to lead to family disputes, in air quotes. Perhaps it's also worth noting that the sheikhs and emirs had no compunctions about accepting the protection of Christians, since the latter were not intent on meddling in their affairs. They just wanted their ships to be able to pass undisturbed. In comparison, the Saudi state nearby looked much more threatening. Giving up a little sovereignty or risk being swallowed whole, it was not a difficult choice. Just like it's not hard to see why a country like Lithuania wanted to join NATO. In no time, the Pirate Coast would be renamed the Trucial Coast after the truces between the British and what would later become the United Arab Emirates. This shows how successful this British policy proved to be. Oman also became a protectorate of salts, by the way. There was one major difference with the statelets in the north, however. The latter were lifted from obscurity by the British, while Oman had had a true intercontinental empire until just recently. It had been the British who had forced them to give it up, mostly. More on that in the upcoming episode. To wrap things up, I would like to return to the topic we started the episode with, the biased ways in which we tend to think about modernization. In most history books, the so-called backwardness of Oman and Yemen at the time is blamed on the conservatism of their leaders. The fact that Oman suddenly turned much more prosperous after the overthrow of the old Imam by his western-minded son Qaboos reinforces this argument. But there is another way of looking at this. When it comes to modernization, 
Europeans were the trendsetters and Egyptians were early adopters. The latter profited from that at first, but then the trendsetters put them in their place, forcing them out of Arabia for starters. When the Ottomans in turn tried to follow the Egyptian example, something similar would happen to them. Both Egypt and the Ottoman Empire subsequently fell into a debt trap and ended up as semi colonies. Maybe that was inevitable, for modernization requires building armies, bureaucracies, infrastructure. All that costs an awful lot of money, money that can only be earned back later when the investments start paying off. The only ones who could loan them this sort of money in practice were Europeans, the ones that they were trying to catch up with. The cartoon figure Dogbert once said, Beware of the advice of successful people. They are not looking for company. The Ottomans and Egyptians found that the road to modernization led straight into a ravine of bankruptcy. Crucial parts of the economy were given up as collateral. Creditors obtained control of economic policy. With fewer and fewer options to raise money, the prospects of ever repaying those debts were ever more bleak. For their part, the conservative Omani Sultan bin Taimur and the Yemeni Imams refused to play that game. Thereby, they ensured that their countries would not develop, but all the while, they did maintain their grip on power for a very long time. In the case of bin Taimur, for no less than 38 years. Even if they had the same level of hindsight as we do today, I'm not sure they would have done things so much differently. Sometimes there are no good options. And with that uplifting thought, I will leave you for now. But cheer up, next time we'll be talking about <clears throat> slavery. <laughs> Cheerio.